Hello, I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent, and I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, our Beijing Bureau Chief. This is the second episode in a two-part look at how Chinese women are demanding more rights at a time when the state is emphasizing traditional gender roles. This week, we're going to the countryside, where women who marry outside their villages are losing their rights to land that legally belongs to them. I've been in Fujian, meeting rural women fighting back and finding out whether or not they'll get their land rights back. We're asking, why are patriarchal values trumping the law in China's countryside? This is Drumta from The Economist. Hello, Alice. Hi, David. How's it going? Well, it turns out we have a lot of engineers among our listeners, and engineers have strong views about political journalists borrowing a piece of engineering jargon, to be precise, kludge, to describe a mass of overlapping policies. Oh yeah, kludge, that mystery term that you used on our episode about China's agricultural policy. We got a lot of feedback on that, and you know, some people even told us that it's not pronounced kludge, it's pronounced kludge. Well, there I can't help you. But what I can tell you is that <laughs> One of our listeners, Gordon, so he listens while his children run about a playground in Bloemfontein. He says that in his work, kludge means a serviceable but inelegant solution to a problem. For example, using a wrench instead of a steering wheel. Oh, I mean, you can call that serviceable, I guess, if it works. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm asking him to fix my car. And Greg from Vancouver, he emailed to say that he thinks kludge comes from the electronics industry when a design error is discovered too late and engineers have to solder a bunch of extra parts onto a component to make it work. Oh, interesting. I mean, I guess that does sound a bit like the way that China's rural policies are working. Yeah, I'll take that for the win. But thanks to all our engineers who wrote in. So David, last week we were talking about solo moms in urban China and how they're trying to get more control over their family planning decisions. This week, we're turning to the countryside and what's happening to women there. And you recently were in Fujian province. That's right, Alice. So I went to Luqiuwu, which is a village up in the pine-clad hills of Fujian, where a whole lot of women have been protesting and going to court to fight a centuries-old idea that when a woman marries out of her village into another family, she loses her rights to the land or to being a member of that birth village. Wow, fascinating. Wait, so women who get married lose their land rights? And what about the men? Does that happen to them? No. I mean, if you have a brother and sister in a family, the brother can marry out of the village, marry a woman from somewhere completely different. He doesn't lose his land rights. But if a daughter marries out, she loses her land rights. It is completely blatantly discriminatory. Yeah, it's extremely patriarchal. And actually, it kind of reminds me of what I was hearing about from some of the urban women that we spoke with for last week's episode. Not that they are worried about village land rights, but they have the same concept of, even though China is so modern today, once you get married, if you're a woman, you basically, you belong to your in-laws. So you belong to your husband and his family, and you're expected to serve them and do all the work for them. And I think that's part of patriarchal Chinese tradition that still pervades a lot of Chinese society right now. That's what came across really strongly in your interviews with those kind of urban, sometimes quite rich women trying to become solo mums or wanting to be solo mums, is they want control and they don't want to feel that they are owned by a husband. Yeah, 
Although I have to say, like, even for me, I remember when I got married, there's this moment where my mom told my fiance at the time, now my husband, she was like, you have to buy a bunch of these like wedding biscuits, like 14 boxes of biscuits. You have to buy them for our family because this is like my daughter's dowry. And then she told him like, this is Chinese tradition, so you must do it. And then once he did it, she was like, and now she belongs to you. Like now my daughter is your possession. And I don't want to give the impression that my mom is not a forward thinking woman with, you know, she's very open-minded. She is, but just in this wedding tradition moment, suddenly she reverted back to these ideas of marriage means like you belong to your husband. I hope they're good biscuits. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 14 boxes of them are the worth of my life. So <laughs> if you're going to change hands, it should be for at least a tasty biscuit, no? Yeah, but there's like multiple flavors. There were designs on them and so on. But yeah, I mean, even in Chinese language, you can see this kind of gender difference in the way you talk about marriage, right? There's this term, jia, which is used for women. So a woman is jia to a man, like she's she's given basically to a man. And then the man gets to chu. So literally he gets to like pick up, he gets to like take a wife. So even in the way you talk about marriage, you have these different roles for the man and the woman. That's pretty revealing. And how does that work in Taiwan? Taiwan is pretty progressive, right? It's the only country in Asia with gay marriage laws. Do people still use those very gendered terms? Well, I think those terms, they're mainstream because they're just embedded in the language. There's a song that people used to sing a lot at karaoke in the early 2000s. It's a song featuring Jolin Tai. The chorus is like, like today you're going to be married to me. And of course, I'm not saying everyone who listens to that song is like, oh yeah, traditional gender roles, but it's just pervasive in the language. I would say that a lot of young people today, they wouldn't say like, I'm jia to my husband. It's a little bit old fashioned. Young people just say hun, which is kind of a neutral, like I got married. And I think actually across the board, most young people are mostly using that now. That is relief. Anyway, David, I am really excited to hear about what you saw in Fujian. Tell me what happened on your trip. So I went up into the tea-growing hills of Fujian, the coastal province. And these are like your typical southern villages. The houses are kind of modern, but there are some ancient back alleys in Luchuwu. I came across this old stone well in the alley where you could see the grooves made over centuries by ropes to lower buckets. And it's one of those clan villages where the majority of people all have the same surname. They're all called Su. And there is a clan ancestral hall, the Su clan hall, and it's compound with high white walls, those beautiful gray roofs with the upturned eaves and kind of sun-faded red pillars inside. Yeah, I love your description, David. I mean, I can really see it in my mind because I too am descended from a village in Fujian where everyone is named Su. So I've been to places just like that. Although we checked and you didn't go to my ancestral village. And so as you know so well, this village as a clan village, it's kind of like a family. Yeah. So it's like you're all living there and your neighbors, but you're also extended family in some way. Yeah. And even like the village party secretary, his surname is Su. The Communist Party's sort of modern governance now co-opting the old ancestral kind of power structures. So did you meet some of the women who were protesting there? Were they all Su's? Yeah, so the reason I went to this particular village is that there have actually been more and more of these lawsuits because basically rural land is getting more and more valuable in lots of places. And so there's money to argue over. And why this village stands out is that like so many of these villages, it's divided into kind of hamlets, these doi, these kind of sections. There are five sections to Luchuwu and all five sections had lawsuits launched by in total dozens and dozens of women, which 
made this village sound pretty Lehigh from the outside. And so I thought I should go and try and find one of these Sioux women who have been trying to get their rights. And did you find them? Yeah. So I want to introduce you to one of the plaintiffs in one of the big lawsuits. And we kind of trudged up an alleyway to where a neighbour told us she was living and it was the school holidays. So her kids were in. I found them watching internet videos in a kind of darkened room inside because it was a really hot day. And she'd just been to the market. She just got some vegetables. She was getting ready to cook. And she is from Luchu. She's born and raised. And she had spent several years in a coastal province. She ran a small shop out there. And while she was there, very common story, she met a migrant worker from another province and they had kids. So she says that from, you know, more than 10 years ago, she had a child and she hadn't gotten married. She didn't do like a wedding banquet or anything. But anyway, because she had had a child, she was told, you don't belong to this place anymore. You're not one of our people. What did she mean by that? She was, in fact, Waijianu. Uh, yeah, a married out woman. It's basically a woman who is married out of the village and of the clan. And you can hear in that term, in the middle, there's the word jia that we just discussed. It's the verb of marriage, but only for women because you're given to the outside or you've gone out of the clan. That's right. Alice, as you know, that brings up all kinds of bleak old ideas. It's sad how often rural Chinese, when you talk about wai jia nu, they will quote the same old saying that jia chu chu de nuar, po chu chu de shui. So like a, a married out daughter is like thrown away water. So what is the impact of all this on Miss Sue? How does being a Wai Jianyu affect her life? Well, the short version is that she's missing out on some fairly significant money. If she was Mr. Sue, if she was a man, she could marry who she liked. And there's money owed to every member of the village collective. And that's kind of sounds technical, but the simple version is there's revenues coming to the whole village because the government built on one of their bits of land, built a road. There's actually, you know, it's thousands of dollars. And that might happen again. There might be more revenues. There might be more land that's going to be sold off or rented in the future. And she has kids and she would like them to inherit those rights. But because she is a woman who married out, as opposed to a man who married out or just a man from the village, she is not considered a member of the village when it comes to money. Huh. I mean, that seems like a pretty straightforward case of gender inequality. And it's also something that clashes with Chinese law, doesn't it? Gender equality is enshrined in China's constitution. And last year in 2022, there was a law on the protection of women that explicitly said in villages when they're making decisions like these, they should not infringe upon women's rights and interests on the grounds that women are unmarried or married or divorced or widowed or have no males in their household. They're not supposed to do this type of thing. That's right. And look, this sounds like dry technical language, but that word widowed is in there for reason or divorced. We've had cases in the Chinese media where a widow moves back to her parents' home village, but she's not considered a member of that village because her late husband was from somewhere else. We've had cases of women who have fled violent, abusive husbands and got divorced and moved back in with their parents, and they are not welcomed back to their home village but because of that age-old idea of being a Waijianu. The problem is that the law is in conflict with some other quite important laws about the idea that villages, when there's money to be discussed, they have a lot of autonomy. And that dates back to the 90s when there were all kinds of economic changes in the countryside. And so a lot of villages, when they are told, hang on, this is gender discrimination, they're like, 
well, this is up to us. We get to write our own rules. And there are laws that say that they're right. They do get to write their own laws. And the problem is those rules tend to reflect fairly patriarchal values. I mean, that's a bit ironic, isn't it? Because when you talk about village autonomy, it's this sort of grassroots level democracy. But when at that level, they get to make their own decisions, at least in this case, they come out with something that is very gender unequal and also conflicts with Chinese law. And in Miss Su's case, she'd been out in a coastal city. That's where she met the father of her kids. And living on the coasts changed her thinking. Also, she has family in one of the big cities in her province, and some of them work in the law. And so they understood that the law shouldn't allow the village to take her money away like this. So when you got to the village, did you find, you know, like all these women were really supportive and they were saying, we're trying to change things around here? I'm afraid not. No. So in fact, if you remember, that's why I went to Luchu Wiz, because this village has five sections and all five sections have lawsuits with the local county court. As we tried to find some of these plaintiffs in the village and were asking neighbours where they lived, there was a lot of hostility from other women in the village, some of whom live in Luchu because they're Waijianu from somewhere else. And their view was, I didn't get any money from my home village, so why should anyone else do better than me? And there was actually quite a lot of hostility to her. Wow, so she's saying that her neighbours were really vicious, they were you know, saying bad things about her behind her back. Yeah, and remember that her neighbours include people from her clan, people that she went to school with, people she played with in those village back alleys as a little girl. But now they are kind of polite to her face, but they're pretty mean behind her back. So she's saying that she was born and raised in this place and she's never moved her huko, like her household registration. And that is what identifies you as, you know, belonging to a certain place. And typically, if your huko is in a certain place, you should also be getting all the benefits associated with being from that place. So it's a bit strange that her huko is there, but she doesn't have the land rights. That's right. Every time you interview migrant workers in a big city, say on the coasts of China, If they've kept their ID card and their household registration as still listed back in the village, the big reason you would do that is because you don't want to lose that right to a share of village land. But the kicker is that if you live in a village like Luchu, like so many others, the rules that they've written, they have completely different rules for men and women. A man can go and live in a city on the coast, can marry a woman from wherever he likes, and he will still keep his land rights. But if you're the daughter and you marry a man from somewhere outside, then you lose those rights. So Miss Sue has basically been excluded from the village in terms of her rights, but is she still obligated to perform any village responsibilities? That's a good question. And listen to what she told us about the ancestral hall. So she's saying here that when they repaired the ancestral hall, like the Sioux clan building, she still made a donation. And she's like, We're all named Sioux. Basically, we're all supposed to be one family. We were all descended from the same ancestors. But in this age, like they don't have that kind of familial relationship. These days, everything is just about money. And she's not wrong. There's a huge double standard that you hear from plaintiff after plaintiff. I had this really moving meeting with a couple of women in their 70s, and they're old enough to remember the Mao years, when everyone in the countryside worked on a collective farm, and everyone had to do their share of work or pay a fine. And back then, when those collectives 
wanted someone's labor, they were like, oh, no, no, you're a member of this collective, whether you're a married out woman or not. But now, in the modern age, those same old ladies, they're told that because many, many decades ago they married outsiders, they are now not members of the village and they don't get any money. And David, tell me about that shift from the Mao days until now. The structure of the village and how it works has changed quite a lot, hasn't it? It's actually going to flip back and forth. So in the Mao days, it was a commune and everything was about, you know, you march to work in the fields for the good of the commune under a kind of red flag. And there was not very much money involved in that. Then, as you remember, we had the kind of the big reform in the 1980s where every villager got a right to a little patch of land and was growing whatever they wanted. But actually, more recently, particularly in villages that are near towns or even big cities, if they pool their land back together, then they can make big money by renting it out to a business either to plant crops or to build like a warehouse or a factory on it or a new road or a railway line. And there is really serious money involved. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like finally, finally, it's paying off to be from a village or to have a village hukou. And at this moment, the women who marry out are getting excluded. In fact, there's a fantastic paper by Landra Boer, an academic from the University of California in Berkeley, who talks about how some of the villages on the edge of the big industrial cities down in Guangdong, they are making very serious money. And as that paper points out, once the money became very serious, the number of disputes exploded. Including in this village that you went to, right, where you spoke to Miss Sue, who was involved in this lawsuit about reclaiming her land rights as a married out woman. That's right. It's not irrelevant that Lu Chiwu is really close to the county seat. And so some of the village land on the edge nearest that town is potentially going to be really valuable in the future. But I don't want you to think that this is only about money, Alice, because I think what was really interesting about my conversation with Musu, the middle-aged mother who I met in the village, she was quite clear that even when village elders had offered her to settle out of court, if you like, with a bit of cash... That wasn't the only thing she wanted because she's worried about her kids and the principle that she's fighting for. Wow. I mean, you can hear how angry she is. And she's saying like on the money issue, like she could actually compromise a bit. She could give in, but she's just angry about how unfair this is. It's about the dignity. It's about she is from this place and she was born and raised here. So like, why won't they just recognize her as an equal person. And that is why she joined 28 other women and filed this lawsuit in county court against her village elders. And in a moment, we will find out about how that case was treated. But first, we wanted to remind you that if you want to read much more about China, including a long briefing about China's anxious and unhappy young people, written by our colleagues Gabriel Crossley and Simon Cox, you will need to be a subscriber. And if you're not, then why not try our free 30-day digital subscription? You'll find more details at economist.com slash drum offer. And for those who do subscribe, you'll now see that at the bottom of our app, there is a podcast feed where you can listen to all of our economist journalism in audio, including our sister show, Checks and Balance, about US politics, and our long-form narrative series, The Prince, about the life of China's leader, Xi Jinping. Alice, we were talking about how Musu has been trying to challenge the patriarchal conventions in her home village. And as part of a group of 29 women, 
They all took their village collective to court. And what happened? They won. Oh, wow. I mean, amazing. Well, amazing, but unfortunately not as significant as you would hope. She showed me her big stack of legal papers in the front room of her village home. And there it was, all these legal papers with the kind of the red chops and the, the official kind of heading from the county court. Clear as day, a county court judgment upholding her membership of the village collective and saying that she should get a share of compensation for some village land that was taken by the local government, I think, to build a road of 50,000 yuan. So almost 7,000 US dollars. Well, that's quite a hefty sum. Did she get the money? She has never seen that money. And indeed, for her pains, while the court case was in progress, one of the village elders told her that for even asking for this money, she was a thief. Wow, that is extremely harsh. So she's talking about this guy and he's and she says when she was in court, he said to her, this is a robbery. I'm going to sue you and I'm going to call 110, which is like 911. I'm going to call the police to arrest you. And there were some real social costs to her lawsuit. Wow. She's saying that the other people in the village were saying really harsh things about her. They were even saying they wanted to get rid of her whole huko, her household registration, and also her children's, and just make it like they're not part of this place at all. And she says, you know, they were just saying very ugly things that were hard to bear. Yeah, and I don't think the villagers actually have the power to turn her into an unperson. But this is bullying, right? That's basically what was going on. And I think one of the things that was so sad was that this is a totally regular, really nice family. You know, on the wall of the village house, you had the school merit certificate for one of the kids saying it was like one of the best kids in school that year. The kids were really cute. In fact, the little one, while his mother was getting upset, telling her story to me, being nine years old, he took advantage of there was a big sack of biscuits on the floor and he just went and stole a biscuit because his mother was not going to notice but because she threatens to eat into that pot of shared money, then the neighbours are talking about making her a non-person. Wow. I can see why she says, in the end, it's all about money here. So, David, does the central government know about what's happening? There is awareness in the capital, Beijing, about what is happening. And we know this because, for example, there was a really interesting recent online talk given by a professor of sociology called Li Huiying. She's an assistant director of the Women's Research Center of the Central Party School. Now, as you know, Alice, that is like the main training academy for Communist Party cadres in the capital, Beijing. Now, the sound quality on this online talk isn't great, but it is worth listening to because she is so clear about what is going on and why it is discrimination. Yeah, she is so clear here. I mean, she's talking about these payments that come out for the village land. And she says there's quite a few men who just basically get rich overnight because of this money. But at the same time, there will be all these village women who are living in the very same place with their children, with their husbands, but they don't get a single penny. And it's just obviously very unfair. That's right. This online talk was to a law school in Hong Kong, in fact. And she talks about some really detailed research that the Central Party School has carried out. 
Wow, this is fascinating. So she's talking about how the Central Party's gender team conducted a survey in 2016. They went to Hubei, Anhui, and Guangxi, and they went to check out what was happening with resource allocation. In their survey, they surveyed 1,341 villages, and they found that in these villages, nearly 85% of rural women had lost their membership rights. So they were not considered part of the village, and they didn't have access to that money anymore. And what's really interesting is she then went on to tell these students in this online talk that she's noticed something else about the women. It's not just that so many of them are losing their land. It's that when they try and protest for their rights, they try and do things through the kind of proper channels, that they are not about sort of revolution or burning things to the ground. They try and appeal to the authorities because they think that someone should have their backs. It's an incredibly compelling story, right? She talks about how these village women, they're basically trying to make sure that the law is enforced and to use the law to get their own rights. And she says first they go to the village committee, to the small group leader, and they say, hey, you need to act according to the law. But then the group leaders in the villages will say, we don't care about that. We're just going to follow the old rules. So then these women, they try to appeal to higher levels. So they'll go to a higher level government, to a local government. And yet it doesn't seem like it's been effective. I mean, did the central party school speaker give her take on why things are not changing? So there's a clash between different levels of the law. And Professor Lee explains that one thing that all of the rules at village level have in common is that they disadvantage women and basically make sure there's more money for the men in the village. So where does all this leave Miss Sue back in that village that you visited in Fujian? She is losing hope. She is pretty upset. And she describes some other conversations and meetings with officials at slightly higher levels of government. And basically, she was given the runaround, given the brush off. And in fact, going around the village, we heard about other village women who have tried to stage peaceful demonstrations at government offices. Some quite old women were actually detained for trying to kneel outside a government office. One of the older women in one of these lawsuits think that the stress gave her husband a stroke. Wow. I mean, it's incredibly tragic, especially after just listening to even this party school teacher talking about how how these women, they essentially believe in the law and they're trying to use it to assert their rights and they're taking huge risks to do that. And it sounds like they are paying a price for it and things are not really shifting. So what do you think is going to happen in the end in this village? Do you think eventually they will come around? So Alice, you know the Chinese countryside, and I guess you'll be not very surprised to hear that the local officials at that very grassroots level, they are trying to haggle and bargain their way around this kind of deadlock between a county court judgment that's really clear, give these women thousands of dollars, and local villagers who don't want to have any part of that. And so they've basically been offering more and more money to see if they can buy off different plaintiffs and divide up this kind of united front of women. And one of the most interesting conversations was we marched into the village committee offices and we found the village party secretary, also called Sue, because this is, you know, <laughs> and he actually gave an interview. And it's Fujian, so he had like this little tea table. He was making constant little tiny cups of tea. He was chain smoking his way. And he was like, this guy just saying, you know, this has taken up all of my time since I became village party secretary. All I seem to try and do is mediate this dispute. I'm trying to mediate between these women who have this lawsuit. I've got the section chiefs. I've got villagers who don't have a lot of education. He says, you know, 
uh, and they would rather I didn't give them a single fen, a single cent. And he then says, if I give the plaintiffs this money, there's like 60 or 70 other women who could qualify for the same rights. You can't expect me to do that. And so he was this guy, you know, who not really focused on the letter of the law so much as trying to keep everyone calm and avoid trouble, which is, of course, his fundamental job as a grassroots Chinese official. Yeah, I see. I mean, interesting, because my thought is, well, if 60 or 70 other women would qualify, that's a great thing. But I can see from his perspective, it's, no, that is rocking the boat. That is, you know, changing the distribution of resources in this village. People are going to be mad. It's not going to be easy to handle. And yet, despite all this, despite the inertia and the seeming, you know, unwillingness of the local leaders to do anything, Miss Sue is still fighting. I mean, what do you think that's about? Is it maybe, you know, for her children? Yeah, look, she has a son and a daughter, and she said this really moving thing about how she wants them to have the same rights. I mean, when she puts it in those words, it's just so simple and it's so clear. She says, aren't sons and daughters both children of their parents? Why should we discriminate just because of their gender? You know, David, I think what's really fascinating about this case is that it doesn't just show you gender inequality and gender discrimination in rural China. It's also a case where you can see these familiar concepts, right, where the women are trying to appeal to the rule of law. The villages have some autonomy and almost like a local level democracy. But in the China context, all these things are not working in the way that they should be. It's all kind of topsy-turvy. That's right. There's a reason why we spent so much time on Dramta talking about the rule of law versus the party using law as an instrument to enforce order and maintain stability. And one of the really sad things is, remember all the foreigners who got so excited about village elections in China? Remember, you know, Bill Clinton and other kind of world leaders coming and inspecting village democracy? We thought this was kind of the birth of democracy. But it turns out that if you have that local grassroots democracy without the rule of law and without people having individual rights really protected then it is very easy for that to end up as the tyranny of the majority. Yeah, it's a tyranny of the majority. And in this case, it's the tyranny of the patriarchy. And I guess that also speaks to why it is so important that Chinese women are trying to change views on whether they can just be considered as full individuals, equal individuals with men. That's something that we talked about last week. We talked about how the solo moms and women, you know, filing lawsuits about freezing eggs in urban China, they're trying to make progress, even though they think it's slow coming. They're happy that what they're doing might also change social norms and public perceptions. And I think hopefully that's something that Well, I don't know. I'm hopeful that that might happen in this rural context as well. What was it, 29 women in this village? In one lawsuit. There's In total, there's dozens and dozens. Exactly. 29 women in this lawsuit and then many more lawsuits all across China. A woman at the Central Party School talking about these things. To me, there is some hope that bit by bit, the majority view may also change. Yeah, we should salute their incredible bravery and tenacity, not just these women in the villages, but those solar mums that you interviewed And we talked about last week, they are operating in a system that doesn't really believe in individual rights, but they know in their heart of hearts that something is wrong. And so even in a system that is so hostile to that kind of plea for justice, they are not giving up. And I hope it pays off. Thank you to everyone for listening to Drum Tower and we'll be back next week. 
And thank you so much to our listeners who have written to us, including Kate from Melbourne, who mentions she also had a phantom jeweler when she lived in China. Wilfred, who listens from Nairobi, Kenya, while sitting in very heavy road traffic. Thank you also to a Chinese listener who emailed us to say how happy they were to hear these kinds of stories told and said that our podcast was giving them emotional support. Remember, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at drum at economist.com. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barclay Bram produced this episode. Sound design is by Tingli Lim and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howe. The world is unpredictable, but it's also understandable. Economist Education offers a six-week online course on international relations. Designed by The Economist editors and invited experts, it gives you the knowledge and insight to navigate the rapidly changing worlds of geopolitics, business, and technology. And as a listener, enjoy a 15% discount with the code POLITICS. So sign up now at economist.com forward slash international relations. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.